Welcome to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Our program is designed to offer solutions to those individuals with exceptional needs, plus families, professionals, and educators. Dr. Sean and his guests will share ideas that you can begin using immediately in order to promote a harmonious relationship and move forward. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sean Surface. Well, good day, Voice America listeners. I'm so happy to have you with me today. We weren't sure it was going to happen in that there have been a lot of internet outages in the area that I'm in. I'm up in a rural part of Northern California, and so I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do the show, so I'm happy that I am. Um, You know, today I want to do something I haven't done before which is I want to present a history of people with exceptional needs. And and why am I doing that? Because we're talking a lot about racism, discrimination, and people with disabilities have been through racism, discrimination, marginalization for really thousands of years. And... So I kind of want to discuss the process of how things uh, kind of came to be now. Because when we look at today and we look at things like the Americans with Disabilities Act, we look at Rehabilitation Act 504, we look at special education laws, these are all things that we just kind of take for granted and Really, most of them didn't even happen till like 1975. So it hasn't been that long. And, and a lot of growth and a lot of progress has been made. Tremendous progress has been made. <clears throat> so let, let's begin. You know, the history of special education or people with exceptional needs and the terms change and I'll talk a bit about that too Um, and usually terms are related to cultural acceptance, community awareness and vernacular use so we'll get into that but you know it was a pretty turbulent history Uh, more than 3,000 years ago when you were, uh, if you were born with a disability and you lived, because infant mortality rates were already really, really high. So if you had a disability and uh, there was a very good chance that you weren't going to make it. So if you did make it, it was seen as, wow, this person must be like touched by the hand of God. Therefore, I'm going to uh, keep this person around me. And we saw even pictographs of individuals where there was a mind or a symbol of a mind and a drawing of a body connecting the two and then having a God symbol next to that, meaning that there was some connection between the disability and God, so, or the gods. So it was, you know, 
very good luck to have that person with you. Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of like the last time in history until our current day that individuals were given that kind of respect and equitable respect and dignity. It's much more common that we saw in ancient Greece and Rome infanticide was commonplace. And in fact, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, but uh, you were kind of sworn by law that if you're per, as a father, if your child was born with a physical disability, you were to kill the child. And we look at that in, as a horrific thing. And, and it was, but it was also due to what resources were available, what uh, ability the family would really have to care for that child. And we look at things now and we think about them as lifelong supports and those kind of resources just weren't available. So the plight of that individual with a disability, it was pretty dependent on the local custom and belief. So if, like I said, uh, early Germanic, early Greek, early Roman, it was just part of the law that if you had somebody with a disability, you had to get rid of them. Well, and that was pretty common up until the, like, second century, A.D. or B.C.E. And... In the second century, we started to see a bit of a change because religion started to get involved. We had Christianity, we had uh, Buddhism, we had later, after 600, we had Muhammad and Confucianism. And Confucius actually said that we have to develop our children to have a moral sense of responsibility towards others, to be gentle and kind and help those with weak mind. So this was the first time during this kind of Abrahamic and Eastern development of religions that led to a decrease in the barbaric practices of infanticide. And so most people who were born with a physical disability would pass away anyways because there was none of the medical supports available. Um, many typical neurodeveloping kids would pass away before the age of five just because of, of illnesses and, and childhood mortality being so high. So... Now you have these religions in place, and for the first time, people had to start thinking about, okay, well, what, what do we do now? What is the, the next step? And in the Middle Ages, you still saw people with disabilities, and this one was what we would look at now as mild intellectual disability. 
And the word intellectual disability was mental retardation. And I'll talk about why that's changed. But uh, you would look at somebody with a mild disability and they might be sold into slavery, abandoned, just kind of left out in the cold. And so one of the things that the Catholic Church started was what were called foundling homes. And foundling homes were very interesting in that, okay, for in the Catholic religion, you know, there are sins that people engage in and to deal with their sinful behavior, they repent and their repentance may be doing something, doing something in favor of the church, which is in favor of God. So a foundling home was kind of like an orphanage, somewhat. They were kind of temporary places. They weren't long-term. And what they were was like if you had created a, a... sin of sorts, you would work in these founding homes and you would work with kids with various disabilities. And it's interesting because this is where a lot of this, see often these founding homes were out in the outskirts, they were in the forest, they were outside the village. And everything outside the villages were always, you know, scary to people because they didn't travel outside their villages. They kind of just stuck together. So, you know, you'd have somebody with a pituitary gland problem, and they might grow very, very large. You might have somebody with uh, Williams syndrome, uh, who could be small in stature, kind of large eyes, uh, uh, often ears that are kind of set back and can even have a little point to them. have a lot of difficulty with daily life survival, but can talk with an incredible vocabulary. And it's called Williams syndrome. Well, the person can kind of look like an elf. And the person with the pituitary problem might look like a giant. And you might have somebody with dwarfism. And so now you have dwarfs and trolls and these ideas that these things live in the forest is where the mythologies began to look at all of these quote-unquote creatures that live in the dark. And so it's an interesting combination that just at around the end of the 17th century, John Locke wrote an essay uh, called an essay for... uh, an essay of human understanding and or an essay concerning human understanding. And in that he wrote that people are tabla rasa, which meant blank slate and that they're born tabla rasa. So if that's the case, then everybody has the opportunity to learn. And so that was the, the big change is that we now believe that we had an innate ability to to learn. And though kids were being put into these foundling homes and gotten rid of, 
There was also a beginning belief that no matter who you were, no matter how you were born, you would be able to learn. So we're just upon our first break, and when we get back, I'm going to talk a little bit about a uh, – it kind of it was like a 17th century – or excuse me, 18th century experiment that took place and how it actually – that experiment began all of our current special education programs and and what we look at in special education supports. So we'll be back in a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seanservice at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, well, welcome back to today's show, and I'm discussing the history of uh, people with exceptional needs, and I was just talking about how in the end of the 17th century, John Locke uh, wrote an essay, and in that essay, he mentioned uh, the term tabula rasa, and tabula rasa is the concept that it means blank slate in Latin, and it means that everybody's kind of born like this empty shell and can pick up information uh, if taught appropriately, which leads to so many different concepts in our modern day, especially in regards to certain races being thought of as having less intelligence when really all they had was less education. So, one of the things that happened in the mid-18th century, uh, maybe, sorry, towards the end of the 18th century, uh, almost the, the beginning of the 19th, was there were these two aristocrats, and they were riding along on their horses one day, and as the story goes, and they saw a young boy run out of the forest, grab 
some food and clothing that was left there and run back in. Now, it was pretty common. I was talking earlier about foundling homes, and foundling homes are places where people with disabilities and and orphans were often housed. And uh, one of the things that you could do as a penance for your sins was you could either work in the foundling home, but you could also... uh, deliver food or, or clothing or some, some kind of supports. So they saw this kid run out and uh, they wanted to know what he was about. And so they realized that he was living in a foundling home and that he didn't have much skill. In fact, his name was Victor and he was called a feral child, a wild child. And the aristocrats made a bet. They said, you know what? I bet you if one of them said, I bet you if we educated him correctly, he would be okay. He would be just like anybody else. In fact, I believe we could make him into an aristocrat. And the other one said, nah, I don't think it can happen. And so they made a bet. So the one who believed that Victor could be taught uh took him from the foundling home, brought him to his own home. He later hired a physician by the name of Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard. Long name, Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard. And he worked at a school for deaf mutes in France. And there, now when we say deaf mutes, we're not talking about low-income people here. We're talking about very, very wealthy that had the resources available to them to pay for tutors. So Itard was one of these tutors, and physician, quote-unquote, that's you know another discussion uh, of how much actual training he had. But he was hired to work with Victor. And Victor uh, was taught to dress himself, was taught to feed himself appropriately with a fork and a spoon. He was taught various words, and he did pretty good. More than likely, Victor had a mild disability. Maybe he had autism because they said he wasn't very interactive, but he could have been just scared, too, so it's hard to say. Um, So they trained him. And they trained him to bring in a tray of tea and to be a, uh, you know, a good individual. I don't know. I don't know where. Really, I want to say servant. So the idea being that if he could be taught, anybody could be taught. And so what they did with Victor was... They actually carted him around Europe as a kind of a sideshow, showing how he had developed from this wild child, feral child, to this, you know, young man who is now about 14, 15, and uh, was wearing, you know, silks and, uh, and a white wig and, you know, looked like any other young 14, 15 year old. The problem was is that he really did have problems with language. He really didn't like the social scene, and he would have 
some tantrums every once in a while. He would have problems. People didn't understand him. Um, so after a while, the mystique of Victor uh, kind of wore off. And instead, uh, he was kind of just abandoned. And uh, Victor actually ended up... Uh, the aristocrat said, well, you know, I guess we were right. You know, he was able to learn a little bit, but he wasn't able to turn into an aristocrat. So here's your $5. And that was the end of their concern about Victor. So Victor ended up in what we would now call a mental institution, was then called an asylum, and spent the rest of his life there, which was not very long. By 19, he died. And so it's hard, 19 or 20, I mean, very early. And so it's not exactly sure what he died of, um, but the book that describes him really talks about a lot of depression and a lot of, you know, he was just taken away from everything that he knew, and then he made new friends, and he, then he was marginalized by them too, just as a sideshow. So Itard spent uh, the rest of his life opening up actually a school for what we might call mentally retarded youth. Um, and he was the first really to do that. It was, again, only the very, very wealthies uh, uh, had their you know, children in this program. And it wasn't, uh, you know, a group thing. It was a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation. So he had to hire other tutors. And so he hired a guy by the name of Edward Sagoon. And Sagoon uh, was pretty well known. He had started something that he had called his physiological method. And it was a method for kind of increasing eye-hand coordination and language and fine and gross motor skills and it looked at, you know, abilities for sight and hearing and taste recognition. So it was kind of an all-encompassing kind of program. At first, what we would call a multimodal approach to teaching. And uh, he later, uh, because he was very young when he started, he was about 1820 or something when he started with Etard, maybe 1830 something around there. Well, by the 1870s, he actually started, Sagoon started the first organization for the disabled, and that was the American Association of Mental Retardation. So that was started in 1876. And it was the first organization devoted to the quality of life of disabled individuals. So it was a big, big step. And uh, many of Sagoon's methods have maybe slightly modified, but are still in use today, including probably the biggest, which is sign language. Um, interesting enough, towards the end of the 19th century, in the 1890s, uh, there was the opening in the United States of 28, almost 30 uh, training centers. And the amount of training that went on was questionable. Um, these places were not very good places to go. 
And I often ask the question to people, what do you think were better, the private or the public uh, training centers? And, and really, they were still called asylums. And most people would say the private because you think you know, there's more money there and all that. Well, here's the thing on that is that with the private, you would come bring your child to them. Uh, you'd pay them an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, you'd come into this beautiful foyer, beautiful lobby. You would be greeted by a physician who would take your child and tell you that they would have a good life and they would be treated well. And that was it. Because as a rich family or an aristocrat, you really did not want uh, any bad blood in your family. And this was only compounded at this time by someone that we believe is has been so beneficial to the world, and his name is Charles Darwin. And Darwinism brought into light evolution. And it was the first time in the 19th century that there was some agreed-upon, uh, not always agreed-upon, and uh, belief systems that mankind had come to be over time. And not necessarily as the Bible had indicated, uh, or that the timelines in the Bible were different than current ways of looking at timelines, different ways to look at it. Not the discussion for today. But we started to... See, with Darwinism, this idea of, of course, the survival of the fittest. Now, the survival of the fittest is the concept that when two strong individuals mate, they will create another strong individual. Thus, as when two weak individuals mate, they will create a weak individual. Now, that's neither here nor there. The problem becomes... When, according to this Darwinian theory, that when the strong and the weak mate together, they bring down the strong. They don't bring up the weak, they bring down the strong. Thus, you don't want to have weakness. You want to rid yourself of weakness. And so this is when a whole field of what's called eugenics came to be. And what eugenics is, is a type of science, which is not really a science, or I should say a practice that aims to improve the genetic quality of the human population. Now, that's also very controversial. And when we get back from, we're on our second break here, but when we get back from it, I'll discuss it more in detail so that there's a better understanding of how Darwinism, which led to eugenics, led to discriminatory and marginalization behaviors against individuals with disabilities. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes and talk to you then. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having a supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, well, welcome back. And today I'm talking about the history of people with exceptional needs and exceptional lives, people living with disabilities. And before the break, I started to talk about the end of the 19th century where we saw not only training centers start to open for individuals with disabilities, but we also saw the, uh, the, the beginnings of what is known as eugenics, which is a, uh, it's an old Greek word that means to improve the genetic quality of human beings or the human population, and it's typically executed by excluding people and groups judged to be inferior and promoting those judged to be superior. And it all comes, of course, from Darwinism that looked at natural selection. And in natural selection, we have the survival of the fittest, which is the stronger tend to uh, uh, live longer than the weaker, especially when they mate together. However, when they mate when the strong and the weak mate together, they tend to bring down the strong. Thus, we have to rid ourselves of the weak, and this led to uh, projects uh, to, quote-unquote, improve the human population, but it was unfortunately extremely discriminatory uh, and marginalizing to people with disabilities. Uh, because they were seen as only 
uh, individuals that were down the world. And there was a guy by the name of Francis Galton who actually uh, coined the term. He was a half-cousin to Darwin. And after Darwin died, he gave his research the name eugenics. And it was all about this genetic determination. And this went on well into the 20th century, where in 1907, you had the Eugenics Society begin. In 1921, there was a uh, uh, across the nation uh, society that began. Uh, it was endorsed by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so it was believed that uh, it was the right thing to do. And what this meant was that people with disabilities began to be put away uh, into institutions more and more. There was certain medical procedures that would take place, including sterilization, to stop any further uh, um, rates of what was called a negative eugenic or less desired individual. And this happened in a number of countries. And later there was the International Federation of Eugenic Organizations. And it was all over the world, you know. And there was the Kaiser Wilhelm uh, Institute of Anthropology, Human Heredity and Eugenics. And from that, from that came all sorts of articles about the how we could rid ourselves of everything from tuberculosis to the common cold if we just got rid of individuals that were bringing us down. And of course, this led to the practices of Nazi Germany, uh, the Ku Klux Klan beliefs, and it was backed. You know, we were supposed to, you know, during the Stokes monkey trial, there was this belief that there should not be, evolution shouldn't be taught. And we fought for evolution to be taught in schools. Well, one of the things that came from that too was this whole eugenics movement. And I, this happened all the way up until, and it still occurs, where I actually had a advisor, uh, in my doctoral program, and I'd love to say his name, but I'd probably be sued if I did, so I won't, but extremely well-known individual, published hundreds of articles, and truly believes that African Americans have lower intelligence than whites due to their genetic makeup. And he will quote people like Walter Jensen, who was a huge uh, eugenicist out of uh, UC Berkeley in the 20s and 30s uh, to talk about and actually even later and was one of the beginners of our what's now our school psychology field uh, but he truly believed that African Americans had lower intelligence abilities and there's something that's called the Flynn effect and what the Flynn effect is, is Flynn looked at the same information and said, no, that's not true. What's only true is that the amount of education is less. 
if the amount of education were the same, then we would see the same level of ability. So even into my doctoral studies, these beliefs were still being thrown out there. And I'm talking, I finished my doctorate in 2006. Okay, so that's 14 years ago. You know, there are people out there with these belief systems. And so the, there was a guy by the name of Barton Blatt. And in 1956 or 60, something like that, he took a sabbatical. He was a professor at Ohio State. And he took a sabbatical uh, for a year. And when you do a sabbatical as a professor, you usually have to do a project of some sort. So he wanted to go into these quote-unquote training centers and see what was going on. And so he went in with a baseball cap with a little camera inside of it. And took all these pictures. And he wrote a book called uh, Christmas in Purgatory. And it's a, I think he calls it a, a photographic poem. But it's all these pictures of individuals locked up and uh, in facilities and in situations. Like it was commonplace for, like if you know, we look at toilet training now. And that it's so important to toilet train somebody because we want people to want to hang out with that person. And when you have a young kid who needs toilet training, it's not, or or diapering or whatever, it's not that big of a deal. But when you have a 30-year-old man who needs to be diapered, you know, it's, nobody wants to hang with them. And so it's really important for that reason, for their dignity to be able to help them. So we do toilet training. Well, in the past, it was like, if you're not toilet trained, We're just going to keep you naked. You're going to be in a room with other people who can't use the bathroom or or, and appropriately. And at the end of the day, there's a drainage hole in the middle of the floor. And we're just going to hose you all down. And that was total commonplace. You would see individuals with mild, mild disabilities, with people with severe disabilities, being left alone all day long with nothing to do. So one of the things that happened is that there was a classification change. And prior to 1910, the terms for individuals with disabilities, at least the cognitive levels, were you were an idiot if your uh, intellectual level rested at around a two-year level. You're an imbecile if your development was somewhere between the two and seven-year level. And if your intellectual level grew up to about a 12-year-old level, well, then you were considered a moron. Well, now, the interesting thing is that when we look at Piagetian developmental theory now, the highest form of thinking is called formal operations. Happens at about 11 years plus. So... With the old classification, all of us would kind of arrest at around age 12, and I guess we'd just be a world of morons. But the terms change in order to support the needs that are out there. And so it was only in 1910, actually, that the word mental retardation even came about. It was really known then as feeble-mindedness, and it had to have an onset in childhood. It had to have 
cognitive limitations, but then also it was the first time you saw that there needed to be adaptive uh, uh, behavior deficits, meaning that you had difficulty caring for yourself. And it was the first time in about 1930 that a guy named Edgar Dahl, who was working out of Violin, New Jersey, and out of a hospital there, created a behavior scale, which is now known as the Violent Adaptive Behavior Scale, which is one of the leading ways to uh, assess how well a person can do and what kind of supports that they need. Because what's now the, it used to be called the American Association of Mental Retardation, now known as the American Association of Intellectual Disabilities. We look at intellectual levels of mild, moderate, severe, and profound, but with mild, you might only need intermittent support, which is you show somebody how to do something, they pretty much can do it on their own afterwards. Moderate, they might need limited support, meaning that there's a limit to the amount of things that they can do independently. Severe, they're going to need extensive support, a lot of, of, of side-by-side supervision and interaction. And with profound, you might need pervasive support meaning that you need help across the board. It matters how you are raised. It matters what education you receive, what early interventions you receive, because somebody with mild disability might need pervasive support if they don't get any help. So it was really not until uh, the 1950s. Oh, no, excuse me. Let me go back a little bit. After World War One, guys came back from the war and they were missing a limb. They were missing, you know, a finger. They were missing part of their body that they used to use for their job. And so men did the work then. Women really didn't work unless they weren't married. And then their jobs were very limited too. But men, they might have been a, 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 a press uh, um used a press in their job and with their hands, with a hand switch, where they lost their arm. So now they needed to be, if they could just make it a kick switch instead, they could do the same thing. And that law eventually came to be because of financial reasons, and it was called the Rehabilitation Act 504, which meant that if there could be something put into place in your job to help you with your disability, it needed to be done in order for you to do your job. So we're going to take our last break, and we'll be back in a couple minutes to, to, to continue this discussion. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be, and our goal is to assist your family in having a supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. 
Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Sean Surface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Hi, welcome back to the show. So we're discussing the history of special education and people with disabilities. And so I was talking about <laughs> oh my goodness, excuse me. I was talking about when soldiers returned from World War One they needed to return to work. And in order to do so, they needed accommodations at their work. So they fought for a new law to be put into place, and it was called the Rehabilitation Act 504, which allowed for any accommodations to be put into place for a person with a disability if that accommodation could allow them to do their job or, frankly, later to be educated or to have appropriate training or nasty what we really call social validity, to have a good life. So what was interesting was that that was in, you know, 1920. Uh, 50 years later, Judy Human, who was a woman, a white woman with a disability, uh, came to... Sacramento to protest and later they protested in uh, DC and her protest was a sit-in and it was supposed to only be a day or and it ended up being 30 days 
And not only was it, you know, a sit-in, but it was a sit-in of people with disabilities from all different, from different genders, different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, all coming together. And she truly showed that by collaborating together, they could accomplish their goals much better. And so what they did was through the sit-in and through their lobbying, what was created was the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the Americans with Disabilities Act, of course, now allows for buildings to be built in a way that allows people with wheelchairs to get through and certain ramps and, and, and things in place so that people can work their jobs and live their lives with equity and have access to anything else that anybody else um, has access to without a disability. Now, in regards to education, the beginning of that drive really came from the Kennedy family because in the 30s, they had a child with a disability. She had a mild disability. She had cerebral palsy, probably most cerebral palsy is caused from birth and not getting enough oxygen. In any case, um, she had some mild mental retardation. She was taken to a doctor by the name of Winthrop Phelps, and he had a, a place called the Children's Rehabilitation Institute. And it was the first facility around to treat cerebral palsy. So they taught her better motor skills. And, but unfortunately, later, she was institutionalized because she had some wild behaviors. And we don't even really know what those were. But in some way, they embarrassed the Kennedy family, probably her coming into her own sexuality, because she was doing pretty good. She really only had a mild problem, and most of it was in learning to read and write and do math and stuff, and not so much uh, daily living. <clears throat> and she ended up going to see a doctor by the name of Walter Freeman, and he was known as the lobotomist. And there's actually a PBS movie called The Lobotomist, if this is something you're interested in, all about him. And again, his goal was to help people with mental problems. Uh, unfortunately, he made people worse, uh, but he actually made her, you know, before he saw, she saw him, she could walk and talk and had relationships with people. After that, she spent the rest of her life in an institution and she didn't die until well into her 80s and really couldn't walk or talk anymore. Um, when John F. Kennedy died, they changed the name of the Children's Rehabilitation Institute because the Kennedys had backed it with a lot of money um, to the Kennedy Institute, and now it's called the Kennedy Krieger Institute. So one of the things that happened was there was a group of parents that got together in the 40s and said, you know, we can't stand to see our children only interacted with when they need to be fed and cleaned, and that's what's called custodial care. We need to see education. We need to see training. We need to see them have a, a better life. And so after a lot of lobbying, 
the Wyatt-Stickney Act was passed, and that said that these training centers had to do more than custodial. They had to do training, and they started to create real training programs. And later, and that meant that people were taught skills for, to teach themselves and, or to help themselves and to as a vocation. In 1975, the first public education law was passed uh, for six to 18 year olds with disabilities and allowed them to be in school. In 1986, it was extended to three to 21 year olds. And then in 97, it was zero birth to 97, excuse me, <laughs> birth to 21 years. In 2004, it was the first time the law said that parents had to be involved in the education of their kids. So there's been so many supports now that are put into place. We've got sibling supports. I actually did my dissertation on looking at how siblings are affected socially and academically when they have a brother or sister with autism. So research is out there. There's a better understanding of psychopharmacology so that a lot of mental health issues can be treated medically. We see a lot of side-by-side -side interaction in, in school. We see integration of individuals with disabilities and inclusion in all programs. So, and in, even in 2010, Rose's Law came about, which changed the name of mental retardation to intellectual disability because mental retardation became like a bad word. Like somebody would say, you're mentally retarded. Hey, what's the matter with you? You're retarded? So because of things like that, the word was taken out of the defining criteria and intellectual disability was put into place instead. Um, Karen Horney, she was a student of Freud's, and her work was all about how in life either people move towards us or away from us. And my work and my life's vision has always been to have our, everybody moving towards our families with disabilities and our community members with disabilities. And all the work that we do at Total Programs is to help create programs to move people in the direction that people want to be with them and to get disability awareness out there so that there's an understanding. If it wasn't for people... Uh, like Judy Human, uh, there would be no sp special education supports in place. There wouldn't be uh, programs in place. If it wasn't for parents that helped pass the Wyatt-Stickney Act, there would be no uh, special education now. So I want all of the people that we work with to have the opportunity to have those supports and it's only been about 20 years that there's been equity amongst individuals with disabilities in schools. How did that happen? By Judy Human bringing people together. And I'm hoping that in our current state of protesting, that it is seen as us bringing ourselves together and collaborating towards problem solving. And if that if we're all thinking in the same way or the majority is thinking in the same direction, we're much more likely to be successful in changing cultural mindsets. Just like the ideology of disabilities 
has changed over time and has been very significantly difficult for those individuals, the same thing can happen for people of color, people of different sexual orientations, people of different belief systems to be able to live together with some equity. So I uh, find this topic to be very interesting and I'm happy that you were able to share with me today. So thank you and remember on Solutions and Strategies we're about your successes and helping you take on your challenges on a daily basis. Blessings. Thanks so much for listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the challenge. Be sure to join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.